Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to a new segment of Curva Mundial called Extra Time. I am your host, Sal Bono, and Curva Mundial Extra Time is when I speak to a previous guest who has been on the podcast and welcoming them again in between seasons. So as you get ready for the next season of Curva Mundial, here is an Extra Time interview with our dear friend, author and journalist, Gary Thacker. Gary, welcome back again, mate. Thanks, Sal. Great to be on the pod with you again, buddy. Uh, I'm so happy that we are talking because last year you were ta- when you were on, you were discussing uh, sunsetting your uh, writing career as an author. And but now we have a new book out. So I hope that this inspires you to keep going. One of my favorite authors here. You're now on to discuss your new book for pitch publishing called Dutch Masters. When Ajax's total vote ball conquered Europe. You were working on the book when we first spoke last year for your other book, Out of the Blue, which came out, which was about your favorite club, Chelsea. So what made you want to look into Ajax, though? I mean, I've been a fan of Dutch football um, for oh, 50 years. Yeah, I mean, li- I mean, literally 50 years. I mean, it's integrated Ajax teams of the early 70s with the book of uh, features and also the Dutch World Cup team in 74 and 78. Um, Total football was always a fascinating subject for me. I mean, they, you know, when you're growing up, you get your hitch onto some kind of um, way of playing, some tactical a, a approach, some philosophy about the game. And for me, total football was the, was, was the one. And you know, even to this day, to my mind, you pick your best eleven players, and then you give them positions. And that's it. You pick your best eleven players, your best footballers. Um, and you know, the Ajax team of the of the um, early seventies, they were just. I mean. You know, some teams are great. You have great teams in, in history. They have six great players. I actually have 11 great players. I mean, they're just a wonderful team. And as I say, I've always been a, a massive advocate of Dutch football. I remember previously the beautiful bridesmaids dressed in orange about the Dutch national team. And this this was just something that I also wanted to do. I love it. What is what is total football and what defines it? <laughs> now, that's... That is the question. That is the question. Um, you know, it's the first section of the book actually deals with that question. And I spoke to a lot of people, uh, canvas opinion. So uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to get in touch with Rude Kroll, who played for Ajax, like a power forward against Ajax, Johnny Rep, um, Orca Cock, who is probably the most famous Dutch football journalist of all time, David Winner, wrote Brilliant Orange. Um, Menno Potty with the knowledge Ajax expert and, and, and other other journalists and, and, and ex-players, uh, Sonny Saloy played many times for Ajax as well, and asked them the asked them that question. Because you know, when you on a, a podcast I was on a few years ago, I got asked the question myself and I said, Yeah, well, it's about, you know, everybody exchanging places and ducks pick positions, and, and then you uh, and then you start pulling over your own tongue because it's so many things, it means different things to different people. It's almost something you can't write down. It's it's a belief in playing and playing um, progressive football. Um, you know, it is about swapping positions. It is about adaptability. It is about pressing when you haven't got the possession. It is about stretching the pitch when you've got you've got the ball and compacting it when you haven't. Um, which so many other things as well. And I say I asked I asked probably ten dozen people and got ten dozen different answers. Wow, wow. You know what is mind-blowing though is is that this comes to fruition in the 1970s and i don't know 
if there's something about that decade, because when I look back on it in the cultural zeitgeist in America and in Europe, you have the films are better. You have the Taxi Driver, The Godfather. You have the music's better. You have Zeppelin. You have the birth of hip hop. Uh, you have um, and this explosion in football that has never been seen before and may not have actually been seen since. You have the great Johan Cruyff. You have Pele, who is retiring from the national team, but coming back and, you know, injuries and all. But he's still, at the end of the day, Pele. America finally dives into the soccer world with the NASL. So much is going on that everything just seems better. Now, of course, we know crime and inflation and economics and politics is, is crap. There's the height of the Cold War. There's all sorts of things that are really, really awful. But the things that are good aren't just good. They're great. Star Wars, of course, is another thing that comes out in the 70s. Um, but Ajax also fits all of that, too, because there was something about Ajax where they weren't just a soccer team. They they changed the culture of what cool was. Johan Cruyff looked like Steve McQueen. These guys were smoking cigarettes on the sidelines. You know, they were going out to the clubs. They were doing everything a footballer shouldn't do. And yet they were playing. They weren't playing a sport. They were making poetry. It was classical music on the field. So when you look back on that, with and of course, when we're, you know, talking about it in rose colored glasses and all these things. And of course, I'm sure there were issues going on. But for you, seeing that and in that era, growing up and watching that. Did you get that sense that these weren't just. Average, obviously, they weren't an average team, but they sort of encompassed everything that that decade was about. Yeah, it, I think you're absolutely right, Mike. It, it, it was a period of, of creativity and freedom, and and sort of uh, in, in the in certain Northern Europe, in, in Netherlands especially, there's this counterculture thing, you know, about you know, freedom, different ways of doing things. And you know, I would crawl famous to play the World Cup on 1974 wearing love beads, you know, I mean, this is, and you know, and this, this is the sort of place that was, but I think what it was, it's a total football. I mean, it's, it's you know, going back into that sort of searching for the holy grail. And it's like, it's like fog, try to touch it and it disappears. You can't grasp what it actually is. Mm. You, you know, it's, you see it and you understand it and you appreciate it, but you don't, I can't grab it. You can't take it to yourself. Um, and, and total football had existed in many different areas of the world. Many long time before, but well, what you could call total football, shall we say, uh, in, in different guises, long time before Ajax sort of took it over. So, I mean, you had the uh, the famous uh, Makina uh, River Plate team in Argentina who right. played with five forwards who sort of interchanged positions. You had uh, Gran Torino in the 60s, um, a famous uh, British coach named Jimmy Hogan who went to uh, Europe and started coaching in Europe, um, and he towards. Which the Scottish game called it was short passing and move, moving there to the ball, keeping the ball on the carpets, passing the ball. And he went to uh, in the early years, the 20th century, to Europe, and he, he sort of worked in Holland. He went to a place called Dordrecht in Holland, and he also, also managed the Dutch national team in, in one game. Um, but he also went to Austria and he worked with Weissel uh, there, who, and helped form the, the uh, Austrian wonder team of the 30s. And they had a system called, they used to call it the Austrian world, where players used to change positions there as well. And uh, Hogan also went to um, Hungary and he worked with Sebesh 
on the uh, the great magical Magyar's team who had that sort of play as well, like Hidiguti would be like the false nine. You call it false nine. That's this, this is the 1950s, you know. <laughs> it wasn't invented in Barcelona. It wasn't invented for whatever Guardiola might think. It wasn't invented for Barcelona. <laughs> it, it was a strange thing that this sort of freedom play was coming about. But the era you just described perfectly, absolutely on the nail, buddy, was the perfect scenario for it to be developed. And uh, and Mickles took took that sort of thing when he went to Ajax in the, the early sixties, and he, he was fortunate to have a crop of brilliant players coming through. He signed a couple, but many comes through the Ajax, Ajax youth system, and all of a sudden everything meshed. Um, the freedom, the uh, the creativity, the development, uh, they became you know it was a perfect situation. It was a perfect recipe. The 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 the, the soap was there, and he poured the ingredients into the bowl. Ronis Mickles gave <laughs> a great mix, and out come a wonderful cake. That's that, I like that analogy too. Uh, I, anything to do with food, I'm always up for. <laughs> I know I mentioned hip hop too, but it's also the birth of punk rock. And you're right, there was something about they seem like such a counterculture team. And yeah. Amsterdam, in itself, as a city where Ajax play, has always been a city that leans left. It's it's sort of yeah. when Europe is zigging, they're zagging. Uh, it's a place where Americans used to go to to get recreational marijuana for a very long time before it started happening here in the states. So it it sort of all makes sense. But in an era where people are sort of trying to do different things, it never you don't really think about sports in that context, especially football, because it's the Brazilians play their way, the Italians play their way, the Dutch play their way. But now here's a team that rewrites the rules for everybody to take. And yeah. have in your years of watching this game, what's the closest you've seen to that Ajax 11 that was looking for the holy grail of total football? I suppose the only thing it linked to, and I'll give you the reason why, is perhaps the Barcelona team of uh, Cruyff and later of uh, Guardiola. Um, because uh, 1971, after they won the first European Cup, Prince Michels uh, went to Barcelona to take over. He left Ajax, went to Barcelona to take over and replaced by uh, a remain called Stefan Kovacs at, at Ajax. And later he took Cruyff to uh, Barcelona. And afterwards, Cruyff can coach there, and, he, and he, he reconstructed the entire club in the image of Ajax. Now, in the sort of early years, mid-years mid of the 20th century, there's a guy, an English coach called Jack Reynolds, who coached Ajax. And he, uh, he was over three or four different periods, but he was there for the best part of about 30 years, 30, 40 years. And wow. a very famous guy in the old stadium, the uh, the Mir Stadium, they had a stand named after him. And in the new, in the you want Cruyff Stadium in, in Amsterdam now, there's a there's the, the Jack Reynolds lobby where people are, all the VIPs are sort of put into. He's, I mean, a real famous book. They call him in Ajax, Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack. Wow. Um, and he created the system of every team, every team within that club, be the, the, the junior, most junior team to the senior team, the first level all played the same system. He coached them all, and this is what Cruyff took to Barcelona. And this is sort of, it's almost de rigueur now, almost every club does this, but this was revolutionary. So what I would say is a club does that because they've been built up in their Ajax way, and Cruyff took that, he sort of took the, the DNA of Ajax and planted it into Barcelona. And so the team that he had, the, the Cruyff dream team, and later Guardiola's uh, 
use a successful team. We're probably the, the nearest thing to that, if not only not not particularly in the style, perhaps, but in the the DNA. They they were they were they were the sons and grandsons of the of the Ajax team. Wow, you know we keep talking about Cruyff, and Cruyff to me in in Italy, there's a term bandiera player, and a bandiera player, someone like. Franco Baresi, Paolo Maldini would be the bandiera for Milan. Maradona, Napoli. For me, the bandiera, and I think for a lot of people, it's, this is not some sort of revolutionary statement I'm about to make, but Johan Cruyff, despite the plethora of talent that has come from Ajax, Johan Cruyff is the bandiera for Ajax. He passed away a few years ago, and you didn't get to speak to him for this book, but have you ever interviewed him in the past or did you ever watch him play live? Did you ever get the chance to see him? And what was that? So what was that like? Um, many years ago, um, I used to live in the Midlands of England, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, just north of Birmingham in the, in, in, and living in Aston Villa. And they drew, and I think it was the UEFA Cup or Cup, I can't remember. So this would be 1973, no, uh, and the gap that to be 1970, probably 76, 77. Uh, it was close, tail end of his time at Barcelona, and that Barcelona played Aston Villa there. I, I've got to go, I've got to go, I've got to just, you know, it's in America, you've got the Grand Canyon, in Europe, we've got Cruyff. Neither, <laughs> neither disappoint when you go to watch them, mate, um, when you go to see them. And uh, it was a, a November, October, late October, November day, and it had been raining a lot, the pitch was terrible. And to this day, I still, I'm not sure whether Cruyff, when he was running, his feet actually touched the ground or not. I'm not sure. He scored a magnificent goal. And uh, it's just, it was just, it was a great experience to see him play in real life. I had, when I was researching the book, I managed to get in touch with a guy called Walcock, who I mentioned earlier, mm. who's a, who's a Dutch uh, journalist and author. And he's literally about uh, three or four months ago, I finished, he published uh, his biography of Cruyff. Uh, it's a wonderful book. And he was Massively kind for sending me a signed copy, which is very good of him. And it's, it's a brilliant story. And you know, that's the news I've ever come to interviewing Cruyff. Wow. It's, a, it's brilliant. I mean, Cruyff's biography is called My Turn. And that's okay, that's, but it's, it's, it's a bit it's a bit on the surface. Whereas Orcs Brook is brilliant. It did all the, the good and the bad. And the, well, there's no indifference with Cruyff, you know, there's, there's, there's brilliant and there's sort of, you know, I know they say they're quick and they could, they could start a fight in a phone box, you know, on, on his own because he's just that sort of guy. And, uh, but, you know, back to what you're saying about, you know, the Bandana player, I mean, most assuredly, certainly correct that, you know, without Cruyff, there wouldn't have been the Ajax greats team. I mean, you could say without, you could take five or six, one or two, one player, this player, this player, this player, and that would have made a difference, but Cruyff would have made the difference, not a difference. He would have made the difference if he wasn't there. He was right. a, when Mickles went there, he was in fact it was a guy, an English guy, a guy called Vic Buckingham. He was coaching uh, Ajax in the uh, 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, who gave Cruyff his debut. And in uh, his book, in, in Cruyff's book, his autobiography, uh, he said that Vic Buckland described him as a useful kid. <laughs> and he actually was the first, he happened to be the first professional player. On Ajax's books, first player because he's been a Dutch what was was amateur right until the oh, well the early sixties and Cruyff was the first professional player. But he was paid so his pay was so low that he had to have a part time job as well. 
I used to work for um, in a, a magazine publishing uh, press uh, um, business, doing odd jobs and standing on the street corner selling the magazines. And then he worked in a, in a, uh, a tailor shop or something afterwards. I mean, Pete Kaiser was the second one to have a contract, and he had to run tobacconists as well to eke out his wages. This is this is the team that when Mikkels came to, I'm, I'm rubbish, I'm a bit, so forgive me. I'm rambling. It's all good. It's all good. Um, but uh, when, when 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 Mikkels arrived, one of the things he changed was, you know, he said, I want these two these players to be more professional. They've got to tra train properly twice a week, uh, sorry, twice a day, so if I want them to do. So he demanded that they get more pay. Which they managed Ajax basically this stuff it and, and all of a sudden that, that was like a little re revolution. The players became more professional in more ways than one, not just because they were paid more a proper wage, but because it allowed them to, to dedicate themselves to football rather than have to do these part-time jobs as well. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy to think that the team that would revolutionize football had guys that had secondary career or just side hustles and such uh, could you imagine that today oh hey Kylian Mbappe you're at PSG you're doing great Erling Holland you're you're at City you're doing great but by the way you need to hawk some tobacco and sell some lotto <laughs> tickets it's a different world mate it's a different world I mean and we're not going back to 1920 as I say I mean this was in the 60s I mean it's like I mean it's a it's a way away now I don't know but you know, I mean, it's just—it's almost comical when you think about it nowadays. It is. It is comic. What's what's football was very much backwater as well in in European football. It was very much. I mean, the the the, the national team had played in the nineteen thirty four and thirty eight World Cup. They've lost. They played once in in each and lost both the games. By the time they qualified in nineteen seventy four, they didn't qualify again till nineteen so nineteen yeah nineteen seventy four. Um, they hadn't won a single. World Cup match. In fact, their record in World Cups was equivalent to that of Luxembourg. This is this is 1974. This is three years after, because obviously Feyenoord won the won the were the first Dutch team to win the um, European Cup in 1970. Then I had three times the bounce. So by 1974, Dutch football had dominated European club football, but they hadn't won a single World Cup game. That's a, that's a, a backwater of, of football. Yeah, I know. Dutch football, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It, it truly is. And actually, you lead me into a good question here that I have, which is the we see the Dutch team in 2010 in South Africa against the Spanish side that wins the World Cup, right? And that Spanish side, majority of the players come from Barca. They come from the system of that Cruyff had built uh, that Guardiola gets a lot of the credit for. Uh, there was the tiki-taka, of course, that leads them to the victory. But the Dutch national team, when they are a dominant force, it is they are that they their players are outstanding. Wesley Snyder was unbelievable that year, winning a treble for Inter. It's still to me, and I will, and as a Milan fan, I will still say it is blasphemous that he was never given a Ballon d'Or or even second place. Like that was his season. Uh, but at the end of the day, when Cruyff had played at Ajax, and as you mentioned, Ajax was such a dominant side in Europe, make the Barca Madrid of their era, you know, uh, the Dutch national team were also dominant at that same time, but it never translated to a World Cup. In your in your research, did that in some way, shape or form haunt the club almost thinking that 
maybe we're not as good. Or was it the club was just so focused on what the club was doing and that the national side, well, that's a whole other animal. They can figure it out. That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think it probably leans towards the latter. Uh, 19, obviously, 1973 was their the third success. And so they were going into the World Cup, trying to love in, despite what I said about having record equal to Luxembourg, as probably one of the favourites because of the success of, of uh, Feyenoord and, and Ajax. Um, but I, I mean, after 78 was different. By that time, PSV had come through and were probably the better, the biggest, bigger team in, in Holland. And Ajax and Ajax, PSV and Feyenoord have sort of intermixed as have gone on from there. The dominance of Ajax now, well, Ajax aren't, aren't dominant now. And even in 2010, as you mentioned, I mean, 2010 is a really good, interesting sort of example. Um, Cruyff disowned the 2010 Dutch team because of their... The team was, was, was managed by a guy called Bert Marwick, who had previously been manager of Australia. Now, Australia wasn't the best team, but they had they were sort of quite physical and they, they, they sort of put it all out there. And he, he almost got the Dutch playing the same, which is alien to... To the Dutch concept of play. I mean, even when they won the European Championship in '88, they, they they didn't play top football, but they still played a progressive type of football under Mikkels again. Um, so 2010 was almost like an abomination. Describes. I mean, up uh, it's football with, clogs, football with clogs. I mean, the Dutch obviously wooden shoes clogs, but they, they were. T- I mean, they had a man sent off. They should have had two men sent off. Um, they, they were really. Um, pragmatic, shall we say, rather than poetic. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, but the Dutch, um, the Ajax team were more, were certainly more in um, concentrated on their own club success in the early years, 71, 72, 73, because the Dutch national team had been so poor. It hadn't really meant anything. Um, they hadn't qualified for a European, they had never qualified for a European Championship of that state at all, at all. Um, and they failed to qualify after 78. They didn't qualify for a World Cup again until 1990. So they last played the World Cup. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. No, last, last World Cup they played was 1938. Then they played again in 1974. So we're talking 36 years. They missed 36 years without attending the World Cup. Got two successive finals, lost to the host in both of those finals by an odd goal. And then they didn't qualify again for another World Cup for another 12 years. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. It is really <laughs> mind-boggling. What's interesting, though, and again, what we keep citing is the one player. It is Johan Cruyff who keeps coming up in every facet of every decade while he's alive. That, yeah. that's, how, that's how tied he was to this club, the yeah. embodiment of what the club was. But in your research for this book, for Dutch Masters, which comes out in May, just want to plug that, uh, in your research for the book, did you find that there were other players that were just as important as Johan Cruyff, but didn't get the shine and recognition yeah. that he did? Absolutely right, yeah. I mean, there was, I say, I mean, I, I managed to have a, a conversation with, with Ruth Kroll. And Ruth Kroll was, was uh, he came through, uh, given, it was given a, a breakthrough by Nichols, um, he'd been prospered under Kovacs. Uh, Kroat in the first four years was 1971, 70-71 season, and he broke his leg about two months before the first European Cup final against Panathinaikos, and so couldn't play. And uh, and he was saying about um, 
you know, it would have been, he felt terrible and out of it. But Mickles took him to the game and he was in the check dressing room with the rest of the players. And it sort of, you know, it made everybody feel part of it, even though it wasn't. So Kroll, and Kroll took over the captaincy after Cruyff left. Uh, he captained to the team for six, seven years and played almost. I think, I think he went to America and then went to uh, somewhere in Italy. I can't remember where afterwards. Uh, but there were other decent, I mean, more than decent players. You had Niskins, of course. Uh, Johnny Rep, who I was, again, I was fortunate to, to, to have a little chat with about. I mean, you know, he's, he talked to heroes. You know, I mean, just frighteningly wonderful. Um, Barry Holthoff, who played um, centre-half for them. I say centre-half was sweeper. He, this guy played, actually. He had a bad knee injury in 1973 or early 74, which basically finished him. He, was, he wasn't very old at the time. He was 27, 28. He played 13 games for the Dutch national team as a centre-half, and he scored six goals from centre-half. I mean, a striker. A striker would be proud of that record, wouldn't he, you know? And so, he, yeah, so, so he, got, yeah, he got to crawl, uh, horse off. Um, Vince Serbia is also is quite often in the shadow of the more illustrious player, shall we say, but a great servant player for a long time for Ajax. The horse Blanca Berg was a German, played, um, played, played a long time. They played alongside Hulsoff and Harry Hahn, who came through in uh, 1971, who features on the front cover of the book, actually. Um, it's interesting, I was, when I was talking to, um, uh, I think it was Menno Potts, who's a great Ajax aficionado, he said, I can't believe this is the first time I've seen an Ajax book and you haven't got Cruyff on the front cover. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, so that was, that was that, yeah, but that's, yeah, this, there weren't a team with five or six brilliant players, there were a team of 11 brilliant players. I mean, the goalkeeper story is, is rarely mentioned. He's the only goalkeeper to, to play in three successive European Cup finals and never considered a goal. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's a great, amazing, an amazing team. In my lifetime, so, I mean, I have to say they're the best team I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I, I mean, I've been watching football for God knows oh, 60 years now. Uh, they are the best, the best team. You know, just, and you, you, you said earlier, they were like, they were like poetry. They were, and I described, I mean, the reason I call them Dutch masters, the book is that I refer to the great Dutch painters of the era, uh, the 1600s, and you know, and their canvas was a green football pitch. Uh, they painted beautiful pictures. It's beautiful. <laughs> it was such a dominant team, as we keep discussing, and the stats show. But they were a team in an era of no cell phones, no social media, no 24-hour news cycle. And do you think because of that, they don't get looked at or talked about nearly enough outside of the football purists and football true footballing fans of this game. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. Absolutely right. When I look back, the only games I saw Ags play in that era were the finals because the other games weren't on British television, so you couldn't watch. So I mean, you sort of think, well, I remember seeing them play. Well, they actually I didn't. I saw it afterwards on on, on YouTube things, and that's a thing. But if they'd have had the publicity that Barcelona team under Guardiola had, or the Milan team under Saki had, you know, a great, the great, great team, they would have been ranked at least as level with them. But people, as you say, unless you go out to find the, the images of, of, of Ajax playing, you, you don't know. I mean, God, God bless YouTube. God bless YouTube. <laughs> I, I, I could have hardly written any of my books without YouTube. And, you know, you go back and, and you know, 
you can look at you can look at a, a, a first leg, first round when they played uh, an Albanian team, and you can watch the entire game. It's, it's brilliant, but at the time you couldn't. So you never really had that sort of you might you read in newspapers. Uh, it might have been might might have been mentioned on the news. Might have been. In the, in the great scheme of things, compared to the saturation coverage you say on social media these days, it's, there was nothing like there's nothing. Wow. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Ajax's third successive European Cup triumph, the first club to achieve that rare distinction since Real Madrid in the 1950s. How loftier of an achievement is that then? And now, and what does it still mean fifty years later? Well, I guess it was a, it was a turning point in European football. Um, the teams that had dominated uh, European football up to that point had been the southern countries, Italian company, uh, countries, uh, Italian clubs, Spanish clubs, Portuguese clubs. Um, it hadn't really been, a, and, and it broke the mold. Um, there's a famous game, which is the semi-final in 1973, and they played Real Madrid, and uh, Real Madrid were in this, they were, and they were coming back, and they, they were trying, you know, re-establish themselves in their powerful position as domination in Europe, and uh, they they played uh, in Amsterdam. I think Ajax won two one or one nil. I can't. I think it's two one, and so going to the Bernabeu, where the resurgent Real Madrid. Just one goal to pull back and, and an away goal in your pocket as well. Um, you're thinking, well, this is going to be a task and a half. But Ajax uh, played brilliantly that night, contained them, scored a goal, won the game. There's a piece of magic um, by Jerry Muren. Uh, it, it, uh, look it up on YouTube, it's, it's brilliant. So they're, they're winning and they're basically controlling the game, they're keeping keep the ball. And uh, Serbia, on the right hand, right hand flank, hits this cross field ball to Muren. Muren cushions it on his foot. Keeps up left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Just, just jumping the ball in, in the middle of Real Madrid's, you know, uh, kingdom, and for rolling off to crawl. And it was a moment that sort of says, well, you know, the old order is gone. This, it, we are the new kings of Europe. It was, it was a. Sometimes these things are done by, with a goal or or, or or a victory, but it was that moment that says, and it, Muren's, I've got a quote from Muren in the book where he says, he says. This is the time we said we are no longer little Ajax, we are no big Ajax. Beautiful. There is that that club has generated more world-class talent in in the wake of total football and the holy grail of that era that we've discussing that you highlight in the book. But you look at the names: Frank Rancard, Marco Van Basten, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Luis Suarez, even today, Mateus De Ligt. Huge names, world-class players, definition of all world-class players that have come from there. Uh, Sebastian Haller, who I absolutely love and adore, and I'm so happy that he has beaten cancer and is doing yeah. well at Dortmund. But you see these massive names, even in today, still to this day, come out of that club. But they're not as dominant as they used to be. If there's still a powerhouse of emerging talent, how is it that the discipline is still possible after all these years? And can Ajax, if they manage to keep hold of a new class of emerging talent, keep a hold of them, 
can they go the distance in Europe down the line in the future? Good questions. I, I spoke to a guy called Sonny Saloy, who I mentioned earlier, he played for Ajax um, in the 80s, and he's, he worked for Ajax now. He's basically he's an ambassador. He goes around to other clubs around the world. He, when I spoke to him, he's working in uh, Sharjah. Um, so he's basically taking the Ajax Academy into different clubs to sort of progress their football. And the Ajax Academy, and I, I forgive you, I'm, my Dutch is imperfect, called something like Tokent, which means the future. So the Ajax Academy is, 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 is sort of still structured on the, the, the things that Cruyff created there, that Nichols created there, that Kovacs brought on and developed um, at, the, at, the, at the ground. And outside uh, the club, and you mentioned a delegate, and also the other guy is uh, uh, Frankie Dionk. Yes, yeah. Players have been taken away from Ajax quite early in their career. They stayed another couple of years, and they they prospered. Ajax prospered so well that beat Juve, uh, not to mention the uh, European Cup. I think Real Madrid as well, if my memory serves me correct. And they got to the city finals before losing out in the last minute goal to Tottenham. They were beating Tottenham, and Tottenham scored the last minute. Uh, uh, Lucas Morris with the last minute goal to, to knock them out in the semi final. Otherwise, they would have played Liverpool in the, in the final. And they've been a great game. Um, so, the problem is, is, is the old story of football is money. Ajax have this sort of, they, 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 they haven't got this sort of purchasing power of the Premier League clubs or even the giants of Spanish football, Italian football, and German football, for that matter. Um, so, they will always have to I, sell their best players or but they're going to live on growing their the resources through the academy, and um, it's holding on to the players. It's going to be so it's so difficult because you know it's, it's their job. Players want to earn a lot of brass, and you know they want to win things. And eventually, they're going to go to to the bigger clubs. Can I? It's it'd be great if they did. I mean, I'll see Ajax win the European Cup again. I mean, brilliant, brilliant. It's just romance. It's romance self. It's what football should be about. You know, yes, rather than, yes, you know, the, yes, yes, yes. Rather than the, the you know the dosh and the dollar and wherever, but it's I can't see it happening. I mean, it would be great, but it's one of those things because it's it's a, so much happened makes this history so valuable. But this is the day. These are the days when romance, you know, overcame the financial power. These were the days when you know it was possible, and it only it's possible. It was done, and it was done magnificently. I mean, it was beautiful. It was fantastic. It was it was. It was enchanting. Sorry, I'm... I'm, I'm no, lost I, I, Gary, you know I love your writing. And I love the fact that your writing is... Because whenever I read your books, I hear your voice. And it's beautiful. <laughs> and the and it's, it's everything that I love and adore. And I'm so happy to have you on again, to hear it again. Because this is this is why it's not waffling. You're right. It is. It's all romance, and that's part of the thesis of this podcast too. Now, time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City, but you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code Mundial for ten percent off your first order. I also, as you were talking about romance, how romantic it would have been to have seen Ajax versus Liverpool in that Champions League final. Because I will say this, congratulations to Liverpool and Mo Salah, because I love Salah. But that was the worst Champions League final I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, yeah. So so if it was Ajax, 
against Liverpool, I feel that we would have had something so gorgeous. Even if, even if Liverpool still wins, and that's fine. I don't care. Give me a great game. But that match against Pochettino and Klopp was, and again, congratulations to Liverpool. But this is why this is why Antonio Conte has left Liverpool. I mean Tottenham, rather. Yeah. They don't yeah. know how to win. They no. will never win, it, no. especially in this era. And it, that game was proof in the pudding for me, at least. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But yeah, I mean, you say that, you know, I think Tottenham, if they were going to win, they'd score first. They need to score first because once Liverpool scored, it was job done, basically. And, you know, as you say, and, and you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Chelsea fan and like, yes. obviously there's a rival between Chelsea and Tottenham. And, you know, they just, they haven't got that, what's the word I'm looking for, that desire. The club, I don't mean the players, I mean the club hasn't got that desire to win. You know, if, you know, if the balance sheet's right, you know, they're making a bit of money, they're happy on the profit of the club. But, you know, no fan ever chance we've got a better balance sheet than you have. It, it, don't, it don't matter to fans, does it make? It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you want to count, hey, you know, for, for, as far as fans are concerned, it's silverware, not brass. But some club owners are more interested in, you know, each run, but it was run by accountants now. true. Before I let you go, yeah, because I know you you just said it, you're a massive Chelsea fan. This year we've seen Chelsea now on manager number three because this podcast will be released as soon as we record it. Um, what the hell is going on? How do you feel about the ownership? Who are all these players? There's a billion dollars on the field. There are no accountants at Chelsea, clearly. There is nothing <laughs> to worry about a balance sheet. But what on earth? Is going on with the blues, and I need you to talk me off a bridge here because I am so confused. Well, they used to say to be saying that the only way to make a small fortune on a football club is to start with a big fortune. Well, I tell you what, I think Todd Bowley is trying to make that sort of uh, make that uh, come real. I, I mean, I've seen some brilliant players. I mean, uh, Enzo Fernandez is uh, just a wonderful player. I mean, I watch all Chelsea's games, of course, uh, and they've got some really good players, and I think that. The problem, I, and I'm sure some people come out about why Tuchel left. I don't understand why he left. I mean, this guy's won the European Cup. But Chelsea have a habit of winning the European Cup and sacking the manager the following season. It happened before with Di Matteo. Um, but yeah, I, and the talk now, I mean, over here in Spain, um, it's a lot of publicity about Luis Enrique. He's, he's fired. To, I mean, I, I, that would be, be a good appointment. I think there's not a great deal wrong with a team. I mean, I watched this play Liverpool last night. We should have five and up to half time. Chances missed two two one on ones for the goalkeeper. Plucked it both time. One time we ran the goalkeeper and guy cleared off the line. The chances we had and just don't seem to have the, the one the one component missing is is, is a striker with the ball back in there because otherwise, you know, the, the, the team is, is is pretty good. And I think next season, if Enrique comes in, or if it's Nagelsmann, I mean, I know Nagelsmann's the guy who's apparently in. In contention, but if you get a top guy in there, you want a striker who scores goals. The, the, they're talking about Victor Simon, who plays for uh, Naples, Napoli at the moment. Yeah. He, yeah. Looks, he looks like a Drogba. He looks like a photo bit Drogba. Um, so you know he might, be, you know, it's going to cost a lot of brass. But you know, Todd's, Todd's lost that hundred million pounds. He's lost that down the back of the city. That's fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look from there. It's, it's the great football fans uh, sort of um, uh, uh, companies. There's always next season. You reset, you reset, you figure out where these players are going to 
because there's so many came in that January transfer window. Yeah. And so many, aside from Enzo, like so many, most never even heard of, you know, Modorok, the Ukrainian player, he cost a small fortune, cost more than the GDP of most Caribbean countries and (laughs) hasn't produced, but that doesn't mean that he can't. It's everybody needs a little bit of time. I also think that Grand Potter was not the manager for any of these players. But Louis Enrique, uh, the gentleman that just got, uh, you mentioned from uh, former Bayern manager. Yes. Uh, I think those are great candidates and maybe they can do a great reset here. Uh, One thing that is for sure. Yeah. Fingers crossed. One thing that is for (laughs) sure and for certain is, is that water is wet and Tiago Silva is still gold. Just at 38. Just oh. absolute worth more than every other player on the pitch, still. So it's just a sell. I mean, I saw I watch all Chelsea game. The guy is like a Rolls Royce, he's so smooth. I mean, he and, and this guy is, he's, he's 37, 37, 38. And you see, oh, they're gonna expose by, by pace, and he never gets never gets mugged off. He's wise enough, he's been around the blocks many, many times, and he's uh, it's just a Rolls Royce. He can play teams for so, yeah. I mean, he's just that good, but Gary. Thank you so, so much. This is always, always a true pleasure and honor to have you on. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.